0: Hi guys, it's Inch. So today we are going to look at some of Agatha Christie's short stories and learn a little bit about the crime genre in 1920s England. So, I only have a few of Agatha Christie's short stories and they are all Quiroh. I will try to get some of her- I will look around this weekend and try to find some of her other short stories because they're not just all about Poirot, there's Miss Marple and so on. Let's get introduced to Agatha Christie and then we will read the beginning of one of her short stories. Okay. Okay, so here we go. So here is the introduction. In 1920, detective fiction was a genre to be reckoned with, thanks in large part to the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the world-famous creation of Arthur Conan Doyle Holmes. First adventure had appeared in print in 1887, and within years, he had taken the reading public by storm. So great was the popularity of Sherlock Holmes that when Doyle famously killed him off in 1893, he was compelled by the public's outcry, not to mention his financial considerations. To resurrect him eight years later, numerous fictional detectives had been imagined into existence by other authors in the wake of Holmes' literary reign. But none had achieved his renown, and thirty-plus years after the publication of his first adventure, with four novels and forty-four stories, chronicling his career and only another twelve stories about his exploits to come. Many of Holmes' fans surely wondered to whom he would pass his crime-solver's torch. Enter Hercule Poirot, the literary creation of then-known author by the name of Agatha Christie. Poirot made his debut in Christie's first published novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles*, published that year in England under the imprint of John Lane. Over the next thirty-five years, Christie would feature Poirot as the main character in thirty-three novels. Nearly half of all those that she wrote, and more than fifty short stories, published up until just before his his creator's own death in January nineteen seventy-six. Of course, Poirot never supplemented Holmes in the public's estimation no other detective could have, but his formidable presence in the 20th century crime fiction and his depiction of a variety of distinguished actors in film and television adaptations. Many of them, major award winners, established a degree of renown that other fictional detectives who came into being after him were hard to put to earn. So who was this author? So who was this author? Who had the territory to conjure a character whom many fans consider to be a rival of Sherlock Holmes? Agatha Christie was born Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller on September 15, 1890, the youngest of three children. Born to an American stockbroker father and his irish wife who lived at the time in torquay a seaside town in the english county of devon the christies were a wealthy upper middle class family whose progressive ideas included schooling agatha at home her parents taught her to read and this in turn inoculated her desire to write at an early age she had been trying without luck for several years to publish a novel and short stories when she met Archibald Christie, an army officer in the Royal Flying Corps, whom she married in 1914, shortly after the outbreak of World War I. Agatha contributed to the war effort by volunteering as a nurse, which led to her accepting a paying position as an apothecary's assistant. It was while she was serving in this capacity that she conceived of an idea of writing a detective story as a means of occupying her time during slack work periods. Her sister Madge had planted the seed in her when the two read Gaston Leroux's The Mystery of the Yellow Room, shortly after its publication in 1908. When Agatha expressed interest in writing a detective story of her own, Madge challenged Agatha with, well, I bet you couldn't. As she writes in her autobiography, Agatha's work suited her ambition to write a murder mystery perfectly. I began considering what kind of detective story I could write, since I was surrounded by poisons. Perhaps it was a natural that death by poisoning should be the method I selected. I settled on one fact which seemed to to me to have possibilities. She next went on to develop her dramatist persona, the murder, the victim, and a supporting cast of potential murder suspects. And naturally, she had to have a detective to solve the crime. So I considered detectives. Not like Sherlock Holmes, of course. I must invent one of my own. Someone who hadn't been used before. Why not make my detective a Belgian, I thought. There were all types of refugees. How about a refugee police officer? A retired police officer. Not too young a one. Anyway, I I settled on a Belgian detective. I allowed him to slowly grow into his part. He would have a certain- He should have been an inspector, so that he would have certain knowledge of crime. He would be meticulous. Very tidy, I thought to myself, as I cleared away a good many untidy odds and ends in my own bedroom. A tidy little man. I could see him as a tidy little man, always arranging things, liking things in pairs, Liking things square instead of round. And he should be very brainy. He should have little grey cells of the mind. That was a good phrase. I I must remember that, yes. He would have little grey cells. He would have a rather grand name. How about calling my little man Hercule? He would be a small man. Hercule. A good name. His last name was more difficult. I don't know why I settled on the name Poirot, whether it just came into my head or whether I saw it in some newspaper or written on something. Anyway, it came, it went, well, not with Hercule, but Hercule. Hercule Poirot. Of course, it's one thing to write a detective novel It's another thing to get it published. Agatha first submitted The Mysterious Affair at Styles*, as she titled her book, to Hodder and Stoughton, who rejected it without comment. It went the rounds with several, several other publishers before it ended up with John Lane, the bodily head who had accepted it on a condition that Christie would make suggested editorial changes. The novel is a tale told by Captain Arthur Hastings, newly invalided out of the army, as a result of the same war that has made Poirot a refugee. Hastings, or at least his character type, had been planned on by Christie when she was initially formulating the cast of her novel, as she intended that her detective have her friend as a kind of butt or a, a, a stooge Which is to say that, for all her distancing of the detective from Sherlock Holmes, her her pairing of Poirot and Hastings mimicked the relationship of Holmes and his Boswell, Dr. John Watson. Like Watson, Hastings would serve as a narrator for the vast majority of Poirot's adventures, some exceptions being two of Poirot's best-known tales. Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. When Hastings comes upon Poirot at Styles in the second chapter of the novel, the two are familiar with one another, though not quite the bosom buddies that they would have become over the course of their shared adventures. Poirot's introduction allows Hastings to wax about in his appearance and demeanor with details that would recur in description of Poirot throughout the series. Pyro was an extraordinary looking little man. He was hardly more than 5 feet 4 inches, but carried himself with great dignity. His head was exactly the shape of an egg. He always perched it a little on one side. His mustache was very stiff and military. The neatness of his attire was almost incredible. I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound yet this quaint dandified little man who i was sorry to see now limped badly had been in his time one of the most celebrated members of the belgian police as a detective his flair had been extraordinary and he had achieved triumphs by unraveling some of the most baffling cases of the day with this novel christie established several de- definitive features for Poirot that would become trademarks for his character. Among them are his accented speech, peppered with French phrases that gave him an aura of sophistication and superiority, and indeed, he regularly inflects that superiority on Hastings, the most tolerant of sidekicks, who he constantly chides to use his quote-unquote little grey cells to see the clues that all others but Poirot overlook. Poirot is nothing if not conceited and condescending. One loses count of the number of times that he claims in some variation that both colleagues and crooks are not so clever as Hercule Poirot. But it is hard for others to fault him on this given the superior work that he does in general. The novel established the pattern that Christie would use thereafter for larding the narrative with red herrings and assumptions that would cast suspicion early on someone other than the true criminal. The whole point of a good detective story, Christie wrote, was that it must be somebody obvious, but at the same time, for some reason, you would then find it it was not obvious, that he could not possibly have done it. The novel concludes with what would become another Poirot trademark, the gathering together of suspects at the finale for the surprise reveal of whom the true culprit is, followed naturally by Poirot's lengthy lengthy explanation of the process by which he sifted clues to solve the mystery. Sales of the mysterious affair at Styles did not make Agatha rich. She made only 25 pounds from the sale of the serial rights for a newspaper publication, but the book succeeded well enough for her to pursue writing more mysterious fiction. Following the publication of the non-series novel The Secret Adversary in 1922, she returned to Poirot in 1923 with The Murder on the Links, another magnificently convoluted tale of murder whose mystery turns on buried family secrets and the vulnerabilities and unusual talents of its colorful cast of characters. The novel features several vignettes that call attention to Poirot's personality and quirks, most notably a pathological concern with orderliness, a trait essential to his meticulous methods of detection that verges on the obsessive-compulsive. Looking over the irregular shape of a piece of toast at breakfast, he complains. Is it square? No. It is triangle. Again, no. Is it even round? No. Is it of any shape remotely pleasing to the eye? What symmetry have we here? None. Later, when visiting the golf course where a corpse had been found, he explodes with incredulity to a curie as to whether he plays golf. Figure to yourself, each hole is a different length. The obstacle. They are not arranged mathematically. Even the greens are frequently up on one side. There is only one pleasing thing. How do you call them? Tea boxes? At least they are symmetrical. The novel also calls attention to the contentious relationship between Poirot and most official investigating officers on the case he undertakes. In several of his adventures, Poirot locks horns genially with Detective Chief Inspector James Japp of Scotland Yard, who shows grudging respect for Poirot and the results he achieves. In this novel, Poirot's relationship with Monsieur Gouraud, detective of the Paris Surrey, who considers the Belgian detective a meddlesome old fogey, is a little bit prickly. Speaking contemptuously to Poirot, he remarks, you cut quite a figure in the old days, didn't you? But methods are very different now. Poirot's response, which proves as precision as it is philosophical. Crimes, though, are very much the same. With the publication of her second Poirot novel, Agatha's reputation as a promising mystery writer had grown enough for Bruce Ingram, editor of the weekly paper, The Sketch, The Sketch, to propose a set of short mystery stories featuring her celebrated detective. Twenty-four of these appeared in two series in the magazine, under the heading, The Grey Cells of M. Poirot. Between March and December of 1923, several would be collected the following year in Agatha's first short fiction collection, Poirot Investigates. In March 7th issue, the first of these stories, The Affair at the Victory Ball, was accompanied by a pictorial biographical sketch, The Maker of the Grey Cells of M. Poirot, which touted her as the creator of the most interesting detectives since Sherlock Holmes. Not surprisingly, fans of Sherlock Holmes will almost certainly detect echoes of his adventures in them. The plot of The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding appears to nod to Conan Doyle's The Blue Carbuncle, and a line that Poirot repeats twice in the story. It is my business to know things. Sounds like a paraphrase of Holmes, a famous line from his story. It is my business to know what other people don't know. The case of the veiled lady, with its ransom blackmail letter, was clearly written in recognition of Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Bohemia, not to mention Poe's The Perloid Letter. And one can't help but think that Agatha took a page from Conan Doyle's The Five Orange Pips when writing the ending of The Mystery of the Hunter's Lodge. But these stories are far from derivative, and episodes like The Lemur Inheritance and The Clue of the Chocolate Box related as an account of the only case that Poirot lost in, are unique in the Poirot canon. In the years that followed the publication of the stories collected in this volume, Poirot's renown grew exceptionally with each successive case. These tales form the foundation of his reputation as one of the greatest crime solvers in mystery fiction, and they confirm the bragging rights he earned to present himself to the world as the great Hercule Poirot, the terror of the evildoers. So guys, this went a little bit longer, in my introduction to Hercule Poirot, than I expected. But I did want to tell you that there are a few hold on, other people that are talking about British murder and crime-solving genre. Um, Lucy Worsley did a book called The Very British Murder. It's really good. I... Watched the documentary, I listened to the Audible, and I read some of the book. It's very, very interesting. So, I suggest, like a lot of people, I suggest you guys watch that. There is also an interview that I will add to my YouTube channel. I don't know how to add that to my website, but there's an interview that Agatha Christie did. And I know that I saw it on YouTube and I will up, like I said I will upload it to my channel and I'll create like an Agatha Christie file as we go along with reading The Grey Cells of Poirot. And hopefully we'll find some Miss Marple stuff. She's also one of my favorites. I love Miss Marple. She just is the most peaceful, relaxing, and intelligent person Like, I I know she's not real, but she just is, like, what everybody wants their grandmother to be. So, yeah. So there's that, and, yeah. I hope you all, as always, I hope you all learned a lot. And I will see you all again soon with the affair at the Victory Ball. And we'll start with her short stories, and they are in the public domain. just so you all know. All right. Thank you guys.